We want special on Reformation Sunday. And thank you for the battle hymn of the church. We may be singing that a lot more in the future. Happy Reformation Day. Technically, it was yesterday. But today being the closest day to the 31st, happy Reformation Sunday. This is the 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So thank you for that music. The Reformers would be very appreciative. And if they are able to listen in from the other side of eternity, I'm sure they enjoyed it very, very much. Our motto now should be Semper Reformanda. Always reforming, ever reforming. If the Western world ever needed a reformation all over again, that time is now. While Western civilization still exists, we need a reformation. Work for it, fight for it, pray for it with every fiber of your being, every day that you live, to bring it back. As is our custom this morning, <clears throat> looking to the far sides of the world, quite literally, I bring to your attention, brothers and sisters in Christ, by way of our Voice of the Martyrs prayer guide, who are in Myanmar. I Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Myanmar was formerly known as Burma for ever so long. So please pray for brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus today and the days and weeks to come who are from Myanmar or the old nation of Burma. Designation according to Voice of the Martyrs is restricted, pretty serious there. Christian faith in Burma traces its roots to the missionary efforts of the great Adoniram Judson, who first arrived there in 1813 with his wife Anne. The Judson Bible is still the standard translation used by churches there. Most Christians are from the Chin and Karen tribal groups with very few of Myanmar's ethnic people group coming to faith. Many Bible schools exist throughout the country and indigenous church planters and missionaries boldly proclaim the gospel there. That is the good news, literally. The church is growing despite widespread persecution by the government and the Buddhist majority. The Burman ethnic majority dominates and oppresses other tribal groups. While political change has been much discussed in recent years, only superficial change has actually occurred. The military still effectively controls the country. UN sanctions have been dropped, but the average citizen has not been positively affected. Most Burmese tribal members are Buddhist, while the Chin and Karen people groups are nominal Christians. Rohingya Muslims are a small but significant group that has suffered devastating human rights violations at the hands of the military government. Buddhist monks, in cooperation with government officials, are the major persecutors there. But local officials and tribal militias also persecute Christians. Families and villagers who practice pagan animism often persecute those who convert to Christianity. The widespread, long-running civil war directly affects Christians when they are targeted for attack by warring factions. Villagers with pagan animistic beliefs vengeance against Christians claiming that they are angering the local spirits. And I'm sure they are. As well they should. Church gatherings and church buildings are allowed in many parts of the country. But tolerance varies from state to state. Active believers who share their faith 
face difficulties. Within tribal groups, families oppose conversion and new believers are subject to close government monitoring. Recently, Buddhist monks have actively opposed new Christian converts and evangelists. In general, pastors are detained for a few days at a time. Bibles can be purchased and owned, but most people are simply not able to afford them. While bookstores in large cities sell Bibles, they are unavailable in many regions of the country. Voice of the Martyrs provides materials for the growing church, distributes Bibles, and provides training for Christians. So please remember these folks in your prayers today in the days and weeks to come. Also, um, uh, continue to pray for the situation of Christian believers in India. Uh, unfortunately, persecution is very much on the rise in India due to the more... Um, militant attitude of, of Hindus there. And that may cause some trouble between the relations of India and, and the United States. Uh, they're trying to, so it appears, establish a pretty healthy friendship with the United States, but if that religious persecution rises there, well, that may be a, um, that may be a sore spot. And of course, uh, We'll see if religious persecution in this nation reaches a fever pitch. Um, obviously, pray for your country this week and pray for reformation in this country. Um, pray that we are able to save our nation by peaceful means while we still have the peaceful means to do so. And it's more and more obvious every day that we do have a responsibility to the world at large. I've been listening and hearing and noticing a lot of remarks from people all over the world that they're watching us and they're counting on us to, as our founders would say, keep that sacred fire of liberty alive in this world. We owe them. We owe each other. We owe them. And God is watching. So, for the record, uh, do your duty. Do your duty this week. And wherever our duty may take us in the days and weeks ahead. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day which points to the world to come. The perfect kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which may be very soon arriving, who is to say? We should live our lives as if Christ were coming back before nightfall and we should live our lives as if he may not be coming back for a hundred years after we've stepped into eternity. Help us to do our duty wisely and well. By you, by the kingdom of Jesus, by our brothers and sisters in Christ the world over, by our fellow citizens, and by persons the world over who are counting upon our nation to survive, uh, to provide them some hope in a world that is growing increasingly dark and depressive and tyrannical. Help us to do our duty this week as Christians and as American citizens, wherever that duty may lead and wherever that duty may take us. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to follow in the footsteps of the reformers who fought the good fight with every fiber of their being and changed the world 
by the power of the word of God unleashed again, and by the power of your spirit in and through your church in this world. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the old country of Burma. Ease their heartaches, their trials, their problems, their persecutions. Help them somehow to receive more freedom and liberty to worship and to preach and teach the gospel of Christ, which the enemy will never be able to extinguish, no matter how hard he and they may try. We pray for our brothers and sisters there. They're on the far side of the world. Please help them in the way that they need most and that you know best. Help us from our resources to help them in any way that we can through Voice of the Martyrs, Faithful Ministry, and others. Please hear and honor our imperfect prayers on their behalf. Forgive our ignorance as of their particular situations and circumstances. I pray for everyone who is watching. Bless them, keep them, open their minds and hearts by the power of your Spirit to receive the truth of your word, the truth of the good news that Paul is proclaiming this morning, the message of peace and unity that he has for us this morning, the message of true and lasting peace and unity between human beings can only be accomplished in new life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for the Reformation five centuries ago which changed the world greatly for our benefit and on our behalf and help us to bring Reformation into this world again by unleashing the truth of your word. Your, you are truth. Your word is truth. Keep us in your truth and help us to faithfully proclaim your truth to others who are in darkness who need to be brought into the light of your truth and be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. I pray for everyone here this day. I pray for everyone on our prayer request list for their illnesses, their sicknesses, their particular situations and circumstances. We pray for their healing and for their well-being first in soul and then in body, for the well-being of their families. We pray for their witness and testimony to doctors, nurses, technicians, health care workers, of any kind, help them to be a powerful witness for these folks. May Jesus Christ our Lord be glorified in and through each and every one of them, each and every one of us. Help us to be truly salt and light in this world. We must. We must. If not at this time, then when? And help us by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word to do so and to have the courage and bravery to do so at all times, wherever our sphere of influence may be. Thank you for the Reformation and all that it means and all that it still means. Help us to bring Reformation into Western civilization again while there is still time and into this country while there is still time. Thank you for elevating us to be ultimately citizens of the kingdom of the Christ, which is in this world and will be completed upon his return. And of that nation, that commonwealth, that kingdom, there will be no faltering or failing. Thank you for this hope and of this promise that we are part of the grand plan, the master plan. From your mind and your heart before you spoke the universe into being. And that no matter what happens in this world, it is all under the authority of your plan. And that plan will perfectly be executed to the letter, last letter, to the last detail. Thank you for creating us and saving us to be part of this plan in Jesus Christ our Lord.
So may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, one true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you who are our only hope and you who are more than hope enough for one and for all. In Christ Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and read the portion of Scripture that we're going to unpack this morning from the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. You could summarize these verses as speaking of the unified people of God. We will take up that subject today and conclude it with chapter 2 next week. But for today, chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. These are the words of the Lord. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the old enmity. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So in this passage, 11 to 16, and actually on through the end of chapter 2, Paul continues to teach these Ephesian believers, most of them, most of them Gentiles, perhaps not all of them, but most of them former Greco-Roman Gentile pagans, he continues to teach them to appreciate the truth concerning their new identity after their new birth, being raised from death to life in Jesus Christ the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which we studied last week, Paul speaks of all believers. Here, as you've noticed already, he focuses for a time specifically on Gentile believers. We're not sure exactly what the ethnic makeup was of the church in Ephesus, but it's highly likely that most of the believers in the city of Ephesus at the time he wrote this letter were Gentiles. And so he feels the need, he is inspired to set aside a little extra time in this letter to them specifically. Although there was a Jewish population of some size in Ephesus, and so probably some of the congregation in the various house churches of, of Ephesus, they were Jewish folks, and they would appreciate this passage. They might be a bit shocked at it, but this passage we're looking at today is primarily for us. Who in here is of Jewish descent? Right. This is for us. Gentiles. Thank God he was not only the God of the Jews, the chosen people of the Old Covenant, but salvation for all the peoples of the world was to come through the Jews and to us Gentiles. Good news for we Gentiles who have come to new life by way of the ancient prophesied Jewish Messiah who is to come through the Jews, but who is to arrive and perform the work of salvation for all of humanity, for all ethnicities. So, 
He focuses specifically on these Gentiles, these folks who were formerly very, very pagan. And Paul tells Gentile Christians of their new status, their new identity in God and Christ. And now their relation to the old covenant people of God, the Jewish people who were once under the old covenant, that race of people who were to bring the message of the one true God into the world and who were to bring the Messiah himself into the world. And Paul teaches thereby the current area or the current era of history, this era of salvation history, the, his, the era of the new covenant, the era of the church. And what the new covenant, this era of the new covenant in Christ means for salvation history, all according to the big plan, the divine plan, remember. Great changes, Paul is saying. Tremendous changes have and are taking place now that we're in a whole new era of salvation history in this world. God has now created by way of Christ a new covenant people out of the old covenant, which fulfills the old covenant. And the new covenant people is inclusive, includes everyone, Jew and Gentile. Christ's advent, Christ's new covenant makes peace between Jews and Gentiles. When folks, Jew or Gentile, enter into the new covenant, the new birth, the old hostilities, the old enmities should be done away with. They are both unified into a new creation a new covenant people, as Paul will teach, actually a new humanity. A new humanity which is to occupy the new creation, which is on its way. There now exists only one unified people of God in this world, according to Paul. True unity, one of the major takeaways from this passage, true unity amongst human beings, true peace amongst human beings, it's only going to happen one way and one way only, by way of Jesus the Christ. The new birth in Him. His church, His body, His bride, His people, His covenant in this world. He is the only way in which any true lasting peace and unity will ever be achieved or take place between human beings. We need a lot of unity in this world. Here it is. There's only one way you're going to achieve that. Verse 11. Therefore remember, remember you Gentile folks, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the Jews, by the so-called circumcision, which is the Jews, which isn't performed in flesh by human hands. So if you notice, the first word of the verse, therefore, grounds this verse in what you studied last week. Therefore grounds this verse in a previous passage, a previous verse. Because of the truths, because of the facts that Paul taught us in the previous passage last week, the previous verse, remember, Gentile believers, what you were before your conversion. Your spiritual status before your conversion. Before you became a new person in the new covenant. So he is focusing on Gentile believers. When he refers to those of the circumcision, obviously he's referring to the Jews. The Jewish people, the chosen people of the era of the old covenant in which circumcision was a sign of the covenant. When he speaks of those who are of the uncircumcision. He's using very, um, quite a Jewish vocabulary here. Uncircumcision obviously refers to the Gentiles. The pagan unbelievers, the unbelievers in the one true God. Gentiles were not of the old covenant, of course, unless they were proselytized. Unless they were preached to by the old covenant people. Unless they were converted to a relationship with the one true living God by the Jewish people. And by the by, the Jewish people were supposed to be doing that in the era of the old covenant. They were supposed to be proclaiming the message of Yahweh, the one true living God. 
They were supposed to be proclaiming His truth and His reality to the Gentile pagan unbelievers. They were supposed to be giving the pagan unbelievers the hope in the coming Messiah of the Jews, who if you study the Old Testament very carefully, you will come to the conclusion that He is not only when He arrives to be the Savior of the Jews, He's to be the Savior of the world. For everyone, often the Jewish people did this, often they did not. They should have been proclaiming the truth of the one true God and His coming Messiah to Gentile believers. However, as was often the case, Gentile believers utterly rejected Israel, rejected their message, rejected their scriptures, rejected their truth, and rejected Israel's God, the one true living God, which according to Paul, therefore what? Leaves them with no hope in this dark world. Circum uncircumcision, Gentiles, pagans, unbelievers, and the one true God who were not of the Old Covenant, again, unless they were proselytized or converted by the Jews, to be called uncircumcised at this time in the first century A.D. by Jews, it was actually most of the time an insult. It was a pejorative. Um, it was really something of a term of derision. Uh, it meant pagan, dirty pagan, dirty unbeliever, infidel, an enemy of the one true God, His truth and His people. And then the new covenant arrived, according to divine plan, at the perfect time. The new covenant in Christ, which was to bring all people, Jew and Gentile, together as one people of God in this world. Paul's point is that at one time Gentiles were outside the old covenant hope in God. Now, because of the advent of the Messiah and the Messiah arriving in the flesh, performing His atoning work and inaugurating his new covenant now they have been brought in now pagan gentiles have been brought in have been brought near god's salvation here's the good news is for all people of all ethnicities the world over not just the jews the new covenant in christ is for all people the world over now when he writes this circumcision rite, which was performed in the flesh by human hands he's simply referring to the era of the old covenant the old testament era the Old Covenant rite of Jewish circumcision. And usually when Paul speaks of it, and he will, he will deal with that issue in more explicit terms at length in some of his other letters. But usually when he refers to the rite of circumcision or the old ordinances, the old rituals, the old rites, the old religious observances under the various covenants of the Old Covenant, he's saying... That's no longer of any value. That's been rendered obsolete. That's actually been abolished by the arrival of the Christ in the era of a new covenant. Study your scriptures very carefully. There is a new covenant which is to come when the Messiah arrives. The old covenant was pointing to Him anyway. It was all about Him. It was all pointing to Him. And when He arrives... The old becomes obsolete and is replaced by the new. The new comes out of the old and fulfills the old. It is now all about Christ, whom the old covenant was pointing to all along. So there really is of no more value of that circumcision rite anymore in the era of the new covenant. The new replaces the old. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, that is, you Gentile folks, at the time of the old covenant, in old, as we would say, Old Testament history, Remember that you were at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to these covenants of promise. Therefore, having no hope. And without God in this world. 
Because Gentiles did not know or did not believe in the one true God who revealed himself to the Jewish people and through his word, the scriptures given to the Jewish people, they were often one. They were often enemies of Israel. They were often enemies of Israel's message. They were enemies of Israel's God, the one true God. And because Gentiles did not participate in the God-established covenant life of the chosen people, which they were supposed to be preaching and teaching, by the way. Sometimes they did so. Sometimes they failed to do so, regrettably. Because Gentiles did not often listen to or accept God's Word, God's Scriptures given to the Jewish people, then what's the logical, rational conclusion? Pretty bleak. It's pretty grim. Because Gentiles did not often listen to or accept God's words, the scriptures to the Jewish people, therefore Gentiles had no life-giving knowledge of the one true creator, redeemer, God. They had no hope in Him. As Paul says, they were separate from the Christ. They had no knowledge of the coming Christ. Therefore, how can you place your hope in someone you don't believe in, you reject or refuse, or you haven't even heard of, you're completely ignorant of? They were separate from all hoping in the Messiah and the Christ who, if you examine the ancient Jewish scriptures carefully, he was to come for all people, not just the Jews, not just Israel. Thereby, uh, thereby, as Paul continues, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. It's an interesting phrase, commonwealth of Israel. He's almost giving political overtones to the life of the covenant people of God in this world. Well, after all, they were a nation. They were a nation. And now we are a kingdom of a king in this world until the king returns and all nations and all empires will be subjugated to the king and to his kingdom excluded from the commonwealth of Israel let me be a bit shorthand in this expression here he means the pagans Gentiles were excluded from God's people in this world they were not part of the nation of Israel the commonwealth of Israel they were not part of God's covenant people Thank God, a few were converted and did join. Many or most did not. They were outside. What, what does that mean? Well, they were outside of all of the realm, all of the sphere of God's blessings upon these people. They did not benefit from being a member of God's covenant people in the world. They didn't enjoy the favor of God. Gentiles often rejected Israel, Israel's God, the words of Israel's God, the one true living God. Therefore, as Paul says, they willfully, deliberately cut themselves off from all hope. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Remember all of those Old Testament covenants that God established with His people? Gentiles rejected Israel, Israel's covenant with God. Therefore, they did not enjoy the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Davidic covenant. You folks who have your ESV study Bible, I like a note, uh, one of the notes upon this verse from the ESV study Bible. Quote, God administered his Old Testament, Old Covenant redemption promises by way of His oath-bound covenants. The covenant made with Abraham and Moses and David. The new covenant in Christ, which is the best of all, which all of those old covenants point to, fulfills, the new covenant in Christ fulfills all of the divine promises of all the former covenants. End quote. So when the Gentiles rejected Israel, Israel's God, they rejected God's redemption promises in these covenants. When the, um, so they cut themselves off from their only hope. The same is true today, even in the era of a new covenant. Think of it. Today in the era of the new covenant in Christ, 
when pagans, when unbelievers, whether they be Jew or Gentile, when unbelievers, Jew or Gentile, reject Christ and His new covenant salvation, they deliberately and willfully cut themselves off from any and all hope. Verse 13. But now, here's the words of hope. But now, back to the gospel, thank God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the gospel in a nutshell, in a single verse to a degree. But now in Christ Jesus, there's the good news, the great words of hope. It dovetails, it's perfectly in line with Paul's statement in verse 4. But God, but God, but now in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying God to the rescue. God stepped in. God took action. God intervened. Thank God he stepped in and took action and intervened in our behalf. God, by way of Christ, took action. He came to the rescue of everyone, Jew and Gentile. As Clinton Arnold in his commentary writes, this verse serves as a banner over the entire passage because it is the gospel in one verse. End quote. Yes, the man is absolutely right. Good news, even for the pagan Gentiles. That's what Paul is saying. For those pagan Gentiles, even pagan Gentiles, in the divine plan before the universe was spoken into being, they were chosen by God, as well as the Jews, by divine plan. And so now these pagans who have been brought near by the arrival of the Christ, even they can have a relationship with God. Even now they can have a relationship with the one true living God, only because of Christ and His work, His new covenant. And they also, pagan Gentiles, well I should say former pagan Gentiles, can enjoy the benefits of Jesus Christ's work, His death, and His resurrection. This is huge news. This is huge news to these people in Ephesus in the first century A.D. who lived their entire lives steeped in really bizarre, grotesque, perverse paganism. And there are people who live in very bizarre, grotesque paganism around the world at this very hour. As a matter of fact, even here in America, it may not be exactly what you and I would think of as primitive, crass animism. But folks, a nation which was founded two centuries ago is basically a nation of the Judeo-Christian worldview is now swimming in crass paganism of one kind or another. This is good news for any pagan anywhere in every era of history. The use of Christ's new covenant, the era of Christ's new covenant. It's a wonderful time to be alive. That's what Paul is saying. You folks, you Gentile believers who now have been brought near because the Messiah has finally arrived and His new covenant is in this world and His kingdom is now in this world and that we will be fulfilled when He returns. This is one of the most wonderful times in all of history to be alive. The era of the new covenant. Wonderful time to be alive in God's redemptive plan for history. Because of Christ God the Son, because of His arrival by divine plan, because of His redemptive work, offering salvation to all of humanity, you hopeless Gentiles who were once hopeless, you now do have hope. Gentiles who once were very far away spiritually 
about as far away as you could possibly get. Spiritual death. Because of His redemptive work offering salvation to all of humanity, you who were once far off, not knowing the favor of the one true living God, you have now been brought near to the one true living God, He who is absolute and ultimate reality. Gentiles, by way of Christ's redemptive work, are brought near to God. They can now know God, the meaning and purpose of human existence. They can now have personal access to God, the one true living God. And they don't need any more of that weird, bizarre, anguished, pagan nonsense anymore. Those days are over. You don't need that stuff. You've been set free from that stuff, Gentile believers. Now that you know the one true living God and have been brought near to Him by His Christ, God the Son, they can know and have access to God. They can now be part of His people. They can now be part of His plan. They can now be part of His kingdom. They can now enjoy His favor. They can now glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as we say. When Paul writes, brought near by the blood of Christ, that's a bit of a shorthand expression, meaning everything that had to do with the atoning work of Christ upon His cross. Brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to God by Christ's substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death upon that cross. Offering redemption and salvation. Christ died and rose not only for Jews, but for all. All ethnicities, even Gentiles. His people will be made up of all ethnicities about this world, drawn out from all humanity by a divine plan. That's part of the divine plan. The blood of Christ is the very means by which this restored relationship with God is made possible. Paul hammering home the truth of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul already highly extolled the sacrificial blood of Christ as the means by which redemption is procured. Allow me to quote Clinton Arnold again from his commentary. This expression, the blood of Christ, makes reference to the entire set of events that are associated with the cross of Jesus Christ and calls us to remember that Jesus suffered and poured out His life blood as a sacrificial death to pay for our redemption. As John the baptizer proclaimed, the Lamb of God who is to come to take away the sin of the world, the world meaning all ethnicities. Jesus' blood reminds us of all of those Old Testament anima, animal sacrifices under the era of the Old Covenant. It was all about Him. It was all pointing to Him. When they put their faith in those atoning, atoning sacrifices, they were putting their faith in the sacrifice of the Messiah, the one who was to come, the ultimate sacrifice for the redemption of humanity. It all pointed to, it all prophesied, it all foreshadowed the sacrifice of the Christ. End quote. Verse 14. For He Himself is our peace. That's one of the most magnificent truth statements in the Bible and in the New Testament. For He, Jesus Christ, God the Son, He Himself is our peace. You want peace? There's only one way. There's only one person who can provide it. Here He is. He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, what is that all about? For Christ Himself is our peace. He Himself, His very person, is our peace, our one and only true source of genuine, lasting peace. He is the source of all peace. A lot of folks are going to be quoting Isaiah chapter 9 
within the next month or two. In particular, December. One of the most wonderful prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 9, in which he lists all of the wonderful, lofty titles of the Messiah. Who he is, what he is, what he is going to be, what he is going to accomplish, what he will be called here and in eternity. And what is one of those titles that we love the most and best? Prince of Peace. He himself is our peace. The one and only true source of genuine and lasting peace. Prince of Peace, not only for Jews, but praise God for Gentile pagans as well, who will come to him for new life and salvation. He is peace for the Gentiles, peace for the Jews, peace for all of those who will believe in him the world over. Paul proclaims Jesus as the one who brings real peace in the Hebrew, shalom. And the word he uses here, arene. Arene in the Greek, peace. Hebrew, peace, shalom. They both dovetail together. There's a correspondence there. And we usually mean this is peace, an absence of conflict. No, that is not the biblical definition of peace. It is an absence of conflict, but it is much more than that. What the biblical authors mean by peace, the peace that God is, the peace that God gives, the peace that God brings, it's this kind of peace. First of all, it is a right relationship with the one true living God. And because you have a right relationship with Him, first and foremost, that's where it starts, that's the source, then you may have peace with yourself. That's a concept. Have peace with Him because He's the one and only source of true life and peace. Then you can start to have peace with yourself. And then you can begin to have peace with others who are around you. And you, begin, you can begin to have an established peace with creation that is around you. You can have wellness and wholeness in your whole being. That's what shalom means. That's what erene in the hands of the New Testament apostles means. That's what the Bible means by Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the bringer and giver of this type of peace. The coming of the Christ brings real peace, the biblical definition of peace. Reversing the Gentiles' hopeless situation, you get it? Reversing, totally reversing the Gentiles' former hopeless position and situation. With the coming of the Christ, the era of the new covenant, the era of Christ's church, a whole new hope, a whole new peace is here for you Gentiles who place your faith and your trust in Jesus the Christ, the ancient prophesied Jewish Messiah, who's for you too. And remember, let me quote the Lord Jesus himself. A verse from the Upper Rim Discourse, in particular John 14, 22, Jesus himself says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace not only for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Peace for all who will believe in Him and receive new life in Him. Now, this is a bit interesting. What does he mean by this? Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, what is he saying there? What is that all about? Let me paraphrase it a bit. Who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one by way of this new covenant when they are born again thereby breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall. There's a barrier that was formerly between them. There's a dividing wall that was formerly between them. 
He's speaking mostly metaphorically here. What is this barrier? What is this dividing wall? Well, it's religious, isn't it? It's cultural, isn't it? It's societal, isn't it? All of the differences that cause enmity or hostility or dividing walls or barriers, literally or physically, between the Jewish people and the pagan Gentiles, well, when they receive new life in Christ, they become one people and that barrier is taken away. How's that for unity? How's that for peace? Not only did the Messiah come to make peace between human beings and God, He came to bring peace and make peace between human beings. You can not only have peace with God, but you can have peace with one another. And true and lasting genuine peace to be had with God is only going to come by way of the Messiah. And true and lasting peace amongst one another is only going to come and be achieved by way of the Messiah as well. So Christ, by His work in His first advent, by His new covenant, by establishing His church, He's brought Jews and Gentiles together into one unified people of God in this world, the people of the new covenant, which we celebrate at this table this morning. Christ's church. Christ broke down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Christ ends the old enmities and hostilities when both Jews and Gentiles are born of God, entering His kingdom, becoming members of His church, living their life in His new covenant, His new covenant people in this world. You folks with your ESV study Bible, another interesting, well, great remark made in the notes on this verse. Christ created a new unified people from the old hostile camps. And quote, there's the man's point. One of the major takeaways of this passage. Here you are. One of the major takeaways of this passage. Only in Jesus Christ is true unity among human beings achieved. He is the only way. The only way you're going to achieve peace with God is through Him. The only way that you're going to experience true peace with other human beings is by way of Him, the Messiah. Christ is the only way for peace with God and peace with one another. The barrier of the dividing wall. What's this metaphor? Again, you can say that this is all the cultural, societal, and religious differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. Mostly metaphorical. But do you believe Paul probably has a very literal, physical stone wall in his head when he uses this metaphor? I have to take you back to the first century A.D. To Jewish Life and history and culture. Are you familiar with the Jewish temple complex in Jerusalem, which was standing at the time that Paul wrote this letter? The wonderful Jewish temple, which should be considered one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world, architectural wonders of the ancient world? I think there is a physical wall in Paul's mind in that temple complex when he, that he has in mind when he writes this metaphor. There is, there was a literal barrier, a wall, a four and a half foot tall stone wall in the temple complex, in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, which literally, physically divided Jews and Gentiles. It's called the Soreg, S-O-R-E-G, the Soreg or the Soreg. And by the way, uh, one, at least one of the plaques which used to hang on the Soreg in the temple, has been excavated in Jerusalem and is now on display in a museum. You can go there and see it and read it. And what the Soreg was is it divided the outer court of the Gentiles. The outermost court of the temple complex was a very large court in which Gentiles could go, but they could go no further. 
They could not go past the Soreg. And the Soreg was a very large wall which divided the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the Jews. The inner courts and precincts of the heart of the Jewish temple complex where only Jews could go. And this wall was four and a half feet tall. Some think it's a balustrade. Other historians think it was a, a solid stone wall. High enough to where you can't jump it. By the way, there's also guards guarding it. In fact, the plaque warns you that you pass that wall upon pain of death. I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but it was, I believe it was written both in Hebrew and Aramaic and upon Koine Greek, the commercial language of the empire, the commercial language in which the New Testament was written. And that Soreg plaque says, Foreigner, be warned. Pass this wall and you have only yourself to blame for your subsequent death. And even the Roman overlords upheld that rule and that law. Even under the Romans, a Gentile could not pass that wall except on pain of death. How's that for a barrier? How's that for a dividing wall of cultural and religious hostility and enmity? I think Paul may very well be referencing that wall here. And you know what he's saying? It may physically stand in that Jewish temple complex, and it will until the Romans will destroy it in 70 AD. But Paul is saying, for all practical purposes, Jesus has torn that thing down. The Messiah has done away with it. It's no longer there. Not spiritually, not religiously, not culturally anymore, not with the people of the New Covenant, in the New Covenant in Christ. This wall represents what Paul's speaking of here. Jesus has torn all of that down. He's done away with all of that. Paul's message is Christ has reconciled all people. He's reconciled Jews and Gentiles into a brand new humanity. That's what he's saying. You're new human beings. You're a new type of creation. You're a new type of humanity, which is headed to a new heaven and a new earth, a restored creation. That's who you are. That's what you are. That's your identity in this world. When Jesus arrived, He's changed everything. He's changed everything. He's turning the world upside down by creating a new world, even in this old one. And you're part of that new world, which one day is going to fully arrive and be complete. So forget about all that old hostility and enmity. You Jews and Gentiles who are becoming, becoming Christians, you're one now. One people of God in this world now. Forget about all of that old stuff. Jesus, old stuff, pardon me. Jesus has done away with that. He's doing away with all of that. He's making all things new, as he says. Right? Christ fulfilled, therefore he made obsolete all of that. By, by the way, uh, you know how I am with history. How about e pluribus unem? E pluribus unem, one of our nation's mottos. Out of the many, one. Folks, the ultimate e pluribus unem is the body and bride of Jesus Christ, His people, His kingdom, the people of His new covenant. That's the ultimate e pluribus unem. Out of the many, truly the one. The one people. Verse 15, finish up here shortly. For he himself was our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by what? By what? By what? How did he do that? How did he accomplish that? By abolishing in his flesh, 
that is his body on the cross and his atoning sacrifice. By in his very flesh he abolished the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in, pardon me, ordinances, all of those rituals and sacrifices and observances of the Old Testament, that in himself, his very person, his sacrifice on the cross, he might make the two into one new man, one new mankind, one new humanity. That's how he establishes peace. So this phrase, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself, in himself, in himself, one new man, in place of the two, so making peace. Christ fulfilled. Therefore he made obsolete. He abolished the old custom, the old, uh, pardon me, the old covenant Jewish laws, rituals, ordinances, many of them which separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Paul is saying, after all, it all pointed to Christ anyway. When he arrived, he fulfilled all of that. And when he fulfilled all of that, he replaced it all with his new covenant. And the new covenant brings everybody together. As the ESV study Bible states in this verse, on their textual note, this verse, the old Mosaic law was a dividing law, but dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Christ abolished or has rendered powerless all of that by fulfilling it and by removing believers from the laws of condemnation. The result is a new man, a new humanity, denoting a new human race under a new Adam, the second Adam, the second representative head of the human race, in whose image the Christian is recreated. End quote. The heir of the old covenant, the old laws come to an end with the arrival of Christ. Again, he fulfilled it all. With his arrival, the Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. Please understand that. You're in one of the most unique eras of human history according to the divine plan. Paul's really trying to thump it into their head. A new world has now begun. A new world has been established in the old. Don't forget that. It's going to change life for everybody. You are now a new humanity under a new Adam. The second Adam. The second Adam. The second representative head of the human race. The first representative head of the human race, he failed. The second representative head of the human race, he did not fail. He won. He triumphed. You're now part of him. A new humanity. Thus establishing peace. That's how you enjoy peace. That's how peace comes to you. Last verse in conclusion. And might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, into one body, to God, through the cross, by it having, that is the cross, His work on the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Or let me offer you this translation. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the old hostility. Or let me offer you something of a paraphrase without losing the truth of the original Greek. Christ, by His atoning work, reconciled both Jews and Gentiles who would believe in Him to God as one body, as one people. Through His work on that cross... His work on that cross put to death the old enmity in Himself on that cross. That's what Paul is saying. Christ has reconciled all of His people, all believers, Jew and Gentile, first to God, then to one another. Christ destroyed the enmity between God and rebellious human creatures. That's salvation. 
God then reconciled and did away with the old enmity between Jews and Gentiles. For Jewish believers and Gentile believers states becomes one, one new people, one new humanity in Christ, all reconciled to God and to one another by Christ's redeeming work. That's the real message of peace in this world. That's what we have to give to people. Let me give you the quotes of two theologians to close. S.M. Bao, from his commentary, writes, Christ's enemies, here's the irony of the plan. Christ's enemies used that cross to put him to death. But by divine plan, God used the cross of Christ to destroy, to satisfy his own wrath, his own justice against people on whom he mercifully chose to extend grace and favor, his eternal electing love by divine plan. And through this new creation work in Christ, he reconciled the former hostile groups of Jew and Gentile to each other. End quote. They believers, believers, Jews, Gentiles, notice Paul says, are now all in Christ, one body. There's that wonderful beloved metaphor, one of his favorite metaphors for the people of God in this world. That's how close we are. That's how united we are. That's how one we are now. Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ, they are one body. One of his favorite metaphors. The metaphor of the human body to teach the profound... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Organic. A profound... Organic, if I can use that word. A profound, deep, organic, spiritual unity. Spiritual unity among all believers in the church. Unity with God through Christ and unity with and amongst one another. Clinton Arnold, to conclude, writes this. I give Clint Arnold the last word of the day. Another interesting irony in the work of Christ by way of the divine plan. He writes, Ironically, it is by Jesus being killed on the cross that he, Jesus, is able to kill the old enmity, separating people from God and from one another. The very one who was slain was a slayer at the same time also. The person of Christ is thus the source and place of all our hopes for peace and reconciliation. His shed blood is the very means by which God forgave the sins and rebellion that resulted in the enmity between them and God. It is also the means by which Christ can create a new unified humanity that is reconciled to God and to one another. End quote. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the unity and the peace that Paul proclaims in this passage the unity and peace that can only come by way of your divine Son, Jesus the Christ, and by his atoning work, which we celebrate and commemorate this morning. Please put in the forefront of our consciousness the meaning of this passage we studied this morning as we come to this table. This table represents peace, true peace and true unity with you, and amongst one another, those who believe in you, who have come to new life in you. And thank you for the hope of the world to come that this table represents, that all of the people of God as one will be gathered together at the table of our Lord 
in the eternal kingdom in which there will only be peace and unity eternally. In Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. To prepare for the Lord's table.